from the Parinibbana Sutra. When the Buddha had entered upon the rainy season, there arose in him a severe illness, and sharp and deadly pains came upon him. And the Blessed One endured them mindfully, clearly comprehending and unperturbed. Then it occurred to him, It would not be fitting if I came to my final passing away without addressing those who attended on me without taking leave of the community of bhikkhus. Then let me suppress this illness by strength of will, resolve to maintain the life process and live on. And he suppressed the will, illness by strength of will, resolved to maintain the life process, lived on, and the illness was allayed. He recovered from that illness, and soon after his recovery, he came out from his dwelling place and sat down in the shade of the, of the building on a seat prepared for him. Then the Venerable Ananda approached the Buddha, respectfully greeted him, and sitting down at one side, said, Fortunate it is for me, O Lord, to see the Blessed One at ease again. Fortunate it is for me to see the Blessed One recovered. For truly, when I saw the Blessed One's sickness, it was as though my own body became weak as a creeper. Everything around became dim to me, and my senses failed. And yet, I still had some little comfort in the thought that the Buddha would not come to his final passing away until he had given some last instructions respecting the community of bhikkhus. The Buddha answered, What more does the community of bhikkhus expect from me, Ananda? I have set forth the Dhamma without making any distinction of esoteric or exoteric. There is nothing with regard to the teachings that the Tathagata holds to the last with the closed fist of a teacher who keeps things back. Whosoever may think that it is he who should lead the community or that the community depends upon him, it is such a one that would have to give last instructions respecting them. The Tathagata has no such idea as that. It is he, excuse me, no such idea as that it is he who should lead the community, or that the community depends upon him. So what instructions should he have to give respecting the community of Bhikkhus? Now I am frail, Ananda, old, aged, far gone in years. This is my 80th year, and my life is spent. Even as an old cart, Ananda, is held together with much difficulty, so the body of the Tathagata is kept going only with supports. It is only when the Tathagata, disregarding external objects with the cessation of certain feelings, attains to and abides in the signless concentration of mind, that his body is more comfortable. First point to hear. Only when he's in deep meditation, if we say that, 
that he's comfortable, not in pain. Otherwise, he's only kept together with supports, struggling with illness and pains. This is what being a Buddha is, being exactly human as we all are, aging and when sick, being sick. Important, and this leads up to the next point. Therefore, Ananda, be islands unto yourselves, refuges unto yourselves, seek no external refuge. With the Dhamma as your island, the Dhamma as your refuge, seek, seeking no other refuge. Usually, at this point is where people stop the quote and get some idea that the Buddha is telling people, you know, just be an island unto yourself, almost in, it becomes an excuse for all sorts of self-centered justifications. People say, well, that's what the Buddha is saying to people at the end. But don't miss that, because it really continues. And how Ananda is a bhikkhu, a bhikkhu means a, a ordained one, or one who has taken certain vows, but it means anyone who's practicing for us in terms of this word. So we don't have to have, how is one an island unto himself or herself, a refuge unto herself, seeking no external refuge? When he, she, dwells contemplating body in the body, contemplating, meditating, being present, experiencing body in the body, earnestly, clearly comprehending and mindful. Other translations use slightly different words, aware. After having overcome desire and sorrow in regard to the world, overcome or not holding on to Likes and dislikes, desire and sorrow is, in a sense, a shorthand for all sorts of attachments. When she dwells contemplating feelings in feelings, in other words, when we feel, be the experiencing of the feeling, mind in the mind. Mental objects in mental objects. In other words, being present, being experiencing, being mindful. Whatever words we use, that's what he's talking about. Earnestly, clearly, comprehending and mindfully after having overcome or let go of or not clinging or attaching to desires and sorrows in regard to the world, then truly she is an island unto herself, or he is an island unto himself, a refuge unto himself, seeking no external refuge. That's having the Dharma as island, the Dharma as refuge, seeking no other refuge. That's very important. This is exactly 
what the Buddha is emphasizing, those disciples of mine who now or after I am gone abide as an island unto themselves as a refuge, seeking no other refuge, having the Dharma as their island and refuge, it is they who will become the highest if they have a desire to learn. But let's not miss this, or make it a little more clear. The Buddha, just a little before this, talks about how is a, one mindful? He repeats, when he dwells contemplating body in the body, earnestly, clearly comprehending and mindful, having overcome desire and sorrow, feeling in the feelings, mind in the mind. But how does one have this clear comprehension, the Buddhist continues, when one remains fully aware of coming and going, coming and going, looking forward and looking away, bending and stretching, wearing a robe or carrying bowls, eating and drinking, masticating, chewing and savoring, defecating and urinating, walking, standing, sitting, lying down, going to sleep, being awake, speaking, or being silent. All the various everyday activities that we live in, that's, that is when one is said to have to be clear comprehension. Mindfully should you dwell, clearly comprehending. Thus I exhort you. So this is further clarifying. That's exactly what the Buddha is talking about when he says, being an island unto yourself, or refuge unto yourself. By being this, if I... If you want to use the word mindful, fine. If you want to use the word zazening, fine. If you want to use the word experiencing, being just this moment, what you're doing, sitting, standing, walking. He says it very clearly. Very clearly. And he says this as his teaching when he's at the end of his life. This is what being his instruction and encouragement, be islands unto yourselves, means be your whole life as your practice. No need to go looking for something outside from someone else somewhere else, but using the very functioning of your life, your coming and going, looking forward and looking away, bending and stretching, wearing clothes, carrying bowls, eating, swallowing, chewing, 
drinking, savoring, defecating and urinating. We all do that. We all do that. Some of you have heard me quote So and Roshi, in a sense, extending that, saying, most important sitting is shitting. This Here they fancy up the word and they say defecating. No difference. We all do it. And that's when we're doing that, it's not better or worse than anything else, but it's another opportunity as moment by moment of our life. Walking, standing, sitting, lying down, going to sleep, unable to sleep and being awake. All of these are opportunities of being this clear comprehension of this moment experiencing in all the various forms, in terms of body in body, in terms of thoughts and thoughts, feelings and feelings, mind and mind, mental objects, physical objects. This is exactly our practice. And this is what Buddha, even at the very end of his life, encourages. He says, I've not held anything back. This is what I am encouraging you. The last words of the Buddha, after a little bit more, is very simple. All compound compound things, or simply all things, are subject to change. Subject to change, subject to arising and passing, or subject to since they've arisen as compound things, all things are subject to ceasing. Strive diligently. Of course, he didn't say it in English. And this is from a Pali text. There's a Sanskrit versions of the same. These are the Buddha's final words. And are our instructions of how to practice. Now, I bring this up in a way I had planned on bringing this as one of the Dharma talks. Actually, I planned on doing it at the end of Sashin. However, as the last day's Dharma talk, but circumstances make it the first days. As some of you are aware, on this Monday, January 14th, um, my wife's uncle, Karen Chowan's uncle, Richard Jigen Etheridge, died. Um, I don't know if you would call him my uncle by marriage or uncle-in-law. I don't know what the proper thing is. We've used all of those appellations in any case. Richard was uh, 89 at the time. Um, He was a long-time Zen practitioner in addition to being a world-famous biologist, herpetologist, zoologist, Um, 
he began his um, what should I say his science work and he considers himself a scientist very early he published his first scientific article in 1948 actually two scientific articles in 1948 before the age of 20 um, and he went on to continue publishing article after article in scientific journals until um, 2012, 2013. Um, I have a list of, I think, four pages of his, no, yes, four pages of his, these are articles in scientific journals. Um, he was um, quite well known as a herpetologist. He discovered and named a num- quite a number of species and others named quite a number of species after him. Well, let's see. He had named 13 species of lizards, including three fossil taxa, and in recognitions of his work, some of his colleagues named eight taxa, including one fossil lizard species and a genus of Asian color, no, colubrid snakes in his honor. Um, even after he stopped publishing, um, in, or he continued to assist others in doing work. Um, when he ceased doing um, research for a number of years, he was helping people, uh, I shouldn't say people, scientists from South America and from, among other places, Iran who were writing papers in English but had problems with their English and with how to express the scientific papers and he would help them um, through using the internet rewriting their papers back and forth editing it. Now what is important for us is not Though he was a world-famous scientist, that isn't the reason to talk about it in the Zendo. What is important is in the late 60s, he be, early 70s, he was started to practice Zen. He began with Ray Jordan, who was a student of Nyogen Senzaki's and a student of Soa Nakagawa Roshi. Uh, but Ray was also a, a professor at the same university, San Diego State University, where Richard was. Um, so he began practicing there and going to Sashin with so and Roshi with Yasutani Roshi, I think. Um, 
the first the people who became who were then not Roshis but assistants to the to them Edo Roshi and Maizumi Roshi were also at these sashins assisting. Um, Richard used to say that he went to Sashin so that he could launder his mind. Um, he also, just as he nurtured his um, science students, and many of them became quite um, famous in their fields, and as much discussion about that in some articles, but he also was nurtured people in Zazen. He encouraged people who were interested. I don't know that he went to people who weren't interested, but when people came to him, he would teach them how to sit and support them in sitting. Um, among the people he taught to sit was when my wife was, I think she was 16, 15 or 16 at the time. She was still in high school. And she knew that her uncle did this strange thing called Zen. She didn't know what it was. So she, once he came to visit for the holidays um, and she asked him, can you tell me what this is? So he taught her to sit, and after that, she began sitting in a closet in her house. She would open the closet and walk in and close it, and then she would do her zazen in there. Of course, after she finished high school, she went out to San Diego and lived with him for a year while she began practicing with... Um, others in San Diego at the time. When Richard started, there was no, actually, that's not quite right, there was no full-time regular group sitting, but they would uh, occasional uh, groups would sit with Ray Jordan at his house or at Rosemary Kiefer's house in um, San Diego and with the California Bosatsukai, which who was responsible for people like uh, Soen Roshi and Yasutani Roshi and Suzuki, D.T. Suzuki, coming to uh, Southern California to lead sitting groups. Um, also, so in one sense, if Richard hadn't taught my wife Karen to sit, she wouldn't have come to California to, to live with him and sit with the group of people who were sitting in, Los, in San Diego, a loosely affiliated group who used to travel up to um, Los Angeles Zen Center every Saturday. At that time, you could drive the distance in an hour if you left early in the morning and drove quickly. Uh, I won't say how quickly, or maybe in an hour and a half. Um, so they would come up every week. Um, and he taught other people to sit. So one day, because he was a scientist, he got a call from a scientist, another biologist, and 
ecologist Michael Soule, who had heard about Richard and said, could you teach me to sit? So Richard said, of course, come on over. So Michael Soule came over to his house along with his wife, Jan, and Richard taught Michael to sit and Jan too, but she wasn't really that interested. I've heard said that she fell asleep. Um, now, Jan Soule, you might not know by that name, but you might know her by the name of Jan Chosen, or Jan Chosen Bays, who eventually became a successor of Maizumi Roshi, and is the founder or co-founder of the Great Vow Monastery in uh, Klatskanai, um, Oregon, um, and it's quite a functioning Zen monastery community with quite a number of satellites, many successes. Chosen has an, quite a number of books. Some of you might be familiar with them. Um, so, in one sense, and th- these are just two people of many, Richard would have regular sitting groups um, in his house in San Diego at the time until there was a space where others would sit. He really wasn't interested in organization, in uh, Zen structures, um, Nevertheless, he also sat with Maizumi Roshi a number of times, and his Dharma name, Jigen, is given to him when he had Jukai with Maizumi Roshi. It was, I'm not sure what year his Jukai was, but it was before 1976. Um, I met him in 1976 when I came to um, Los Angeles, and he came up one Saturday um, in fact, that's also when I first met my wife, but we didn't get together till uh, five years after that. Um, Richard considered his science as his practice in terms of exactly what the Buddha is talking about, being meticulous, mindful, earnest, dwelling in the present moment of doing exactly what you're doing. This is how he engaged his science work and in fact is known for the meticulousness of his attention to body structure, skull shape and bone structure. Um, It's also the way he taught many of his students, and it's also um, how um, he encouraged their practice, whether they called it Zen or not. Um, Many of his students were quite familiar with his Zen practice, even though he never propagandized, though, as I said, he did have sitting groups in his house when that was appropriate. Um, In all the time that I knew Richard, he sat every morning. Every morning when we visited him, we would have sitting. His dining room was not a dining room, but it was a zendo. 
weeks. Um, there was the space that was supposed to be the dining room in his house had a large altar and an open space and under, um, underneath the altar, let us say it, underneath it like this, underneath this table, but it was enclosed, there were the Zafus and the Sutra books. And when we sat together, we would sit and then have morning service. Um, Richard was considered his, as I said, his science, his practice, but also he was well known for, uh, he had an enormous collection of succulents, cacti, and other plants, both in his house, outside his house, in greenhouses, outside his house, and he cultivated the canyon behind his house, filling it with plant specimens that uh, many of his colleagues brought him from abroad and that he also brought back from his travels. He did um, research in South America, in uh, Southeast uh, Asia and the Pacific, in the Caribbean, um, and in other areas in Africa. But what's important is for him how he worked in with his plants was his zazen, how he worked with his science was his zazen. And it, as well, those of you who are aware, if you begin your doing science in 1948. It's a long way before computers became um, prominent. And in doing biology, there's all sorts of meticulous lists and editing and work that had to be done in developing uh, species and taxonomy of species. One of the things that Richard did at the end of his life was... He, even after he stopped publishing, he was in charge of what's known as um, checklists for species with the Smithsonian Museum. So he, there's a, he was responsible for one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, eight species of, um, list, what we'll say lizards, that he was responsible for the checklists with um, the National um, Museum uh, through the Smithsonian. But what was important and what I want to bring out was one, the sense of seeing that everything that one does in one's house, in one's life, in one's work, is one's practice. And for him, whether it was chopping vegetables before he made his dinner or examining under a microscope portions of the bones or the skull of an animal or creating and planting um, succulents from offshoots and um, small pieces that had been brought from abroad, all of this was 
his practice. But the other side is the side of the um, rarely encountered and yet the connections that make possible if Richard hadn't encountered Zen and then taught it to Karen, we might not be married now. If Richard hadn't encountered Zen and taught it to Michael Soule, who then, and to therefore to Jan, the whole practice people who practiced in Klatskanai with the Great Vow Monastery wouldn't be practicing Zen. Who knows? We all have to see that everyone we encounter, in one sense, is our practice opportunity. In the other sense, is to appreciate all the people that make possible and have supported our practice and to see that our practice extends in all directions and is connected in all directions with what we've done. So even though in one sense the Buddha says one is an island unto oneself, a refuge unto oneself, seeking no external refuge, that's all about being mindful being experiencing, being present, dwelling, zazening in all of our life. And yet, on the other hand, in every encounter we have, we are turning the wheel of the Dharma with consequences in all directions. There are I pick just two people. There are other people I could talk about that because, let's say, so and Roshi came to America, Ray Jordan began practicing. Yogan Senzaki's group extended further, in part because, of course, Yogan Senzaki came to America. And, and, and. All of these things, people who practiced in San Diego, people who practiced in Los Angeles, and it just keeps spreading in all directions, the same as San Francisco. So, please know that the rarely encountered is dependent upon us doing and offering our practice, not because we tell someone, come and practice, but because we offer it in ourselves, and when Someone asks, we support, we give them the tool of Zazen. What they make of it, who knows? Who knows in which lifetime? Ah, there it is, I knew it. it Richard published 57 peer-reviewed papers. That, I just saw this in this... Um, so, 57 peer-reviewed papers in addition to whatever else he published. Um, so, okay. I talk about this uh, uh, in part because he died on Monday. Um, his in a sense, his um, 
Though we all age and have rapid decline, as you see, even the Buddha in old age is only held together like an old cart, he says. He's, the only time he's not in pain and he's, his body is comfortable and is, is when he's in deep, deep samadhi, or the, here they translate it, signless concentration. Signless, deep samadhi. That's the only time the Buddha's not in pain in, in his old age. And yet, it's fine. Because he encourages his those who come to see him at the end. He says, look at this body dying. Just look closely. Keep. There's nothing wrong with this. This is exactly it. All compound things are subject to change, subject to ceasing, subject to vanishing. And this is the encouragement to strive diligently, strive diligently in being the body, mind, thoughts, feelings that you are not holding on to or blinding or limiting yourself in terms of whether we call it sorrows and desires, whether we call it greed and anger, different words for different shadings of our human tendencies to react to circumstances in the midst of this constant changing, which is our life circumstances. Okay, I have spoken plenty. I appreciate that we could have a a little bit this um, dedication One of the traditions in our practice is when one dies, there's you offer dedications for days afterwards because that's a special time in terms of cause effect of what their life is, what their passing is. So that's the reason Richard's pictures on the altar and during Sashin during service we will mention his name along with others but that's enough thank you if anyone wants to ask something that's relevant to the Buddha's final words and final teachings or any of the things that I said Okay. What <laughs> about the island thing? You know? Even though that he says he talks about being an island. By island, he means don't look outside yourself for something that you're going to get from someone else, or from. In not in his case, but now, don't go looking in books and movies, etc. If you're going to look for what your practice is, it's. 
fright, your body in your body, your thoughts, your feelings, your states of mind, your activities. You don't have to go looking for something outside. That isn't the practice. Don't seek external refuges, says the Buddha. External. What, so what do you do? In your coming and going, in your going forward and your going away, in your bending and stretching, wearing robes, wearing clothes, carrying bowls, eating, drinking, chewing, savoring, enjoying, shitting and pissing, walking, standing. That's where your clear comprehension is. That's what the Buddha says. That's dwelling in this life. That's why he uses the word island. The Dhamma, the teaching is your, is yours in your body-mind, if I simplify it. Being just this moment, that's the island of your practice. Don't no need to go looking elsewhere. See, this is what where people like to say, oh, he says, don't be an island unto yourself. That means you do whatever you think is best and what you want. And, you know, don't... If you take it in that way, it becomes a, an excuse for self-centeredness and ego attachment, if I use such words. But this is the way he expresses it. I guess... We, I have to be careful not to take that metaphor too far. <laughs> because, you know, islands are separate and apparently disconnected from everything. Although no. The connection is actually quite intimate with everything, the whole world. Yes. Islands is in terms of looking for something else. Refuge. Refuge onto yourself. Refuge in the sense of, I take refuge in the teaching. I take refuge in my functioning, in my seeing what's here, in my doing. I don't have to go looking for someone else to give me instructions of where to find practice outside myself. I have it all the time from morning to night. When you get out of bed, in the work you do, in the food you prepare, in the people you talk to, in the people you listen to, right there is your practice. Right there is your opportunity. Speaking or being silent, that's the whole of it. If you think you're lacking something and you have to go somewhere else to get it, then you're not an island onto yourself. Then you believe judgments. Then you believe desires and sorrows. He has that, I don't, so I'm in trouble. There's something wrong with me. That's sorrows. I need to get that. That's desire. Unfortunately, that's a lot of what our society excuse me, not just our society, human society encourages people. When you get the newest, latest, best 
better than, then you'll be okay. When you have more likes on some virtual media platform than others, then then you'll be then you'll have reached that. So it's it's not any he's not talking about any kind of special activity that makes it somehow grandiose or special, but it's just just the ordinary. You you heard me repeat it time after time. I know, but it's. But still, you know, even though, you know, you say that, and I say, oh, yeah, of course, and, but still, you know, there's still some yes. shit going on in my head about, about uh, practice should be somehow special, different than ordinary life. Of course, it's not, but that's those ideas. Well, it's different in the sense that we disparage ordinary life in our society, and we privilege and praise all the special stars of various sorts of media and fashion and newest and latest and best and etc etc that's and it's not just our society human society does it it's just different societies um Different societies emphasize different things. It might be that you have the latest fashion clothes, or it might be that you got the best new horses, or you know, you won the race, the camel races, or your your hawks did the best in in their hunting, or and you could. So it's not even always material objects or you built the biggest house or you got the best uh, all in one. Oh yes that's it <laughs> I hadn't thought of that yeah, I'm surprised <laughs> well I, I don't I don't really know much about golf I mean I know what a hole in one is but I, it's not in my on my radar most of the time <laughs> is that okay Okay. Um, <clears throat> one thing that, that he talked about in this discourse that I'm not sure I'm clear about, because he talks about feelings in feelings and mind in mind. And I take that to, to, to mean to indicate the direct experience as opposed to or beyond or before our opinions and our ideas and our beliefs about our experience. Well, he also talks about um, mental objects and mental objects. It's, this is just a, a, a format. I mean, just like when we talk about the five skandhas, we break it up into body. Yeah. And, and then you break well, it's up... it's the in part. It's the, it's the mind in mind. It's the feelings in feelings. Well, that's the part of it being the experiencing yeah. of it. Right. If we say it in that way, direct experience of it. Yeah. yeah. Okay. And experiencing it in in the very, I mean, this is a shorthand for all the facets of what it is to be human. But it's also connected to certain practices where mindfulness folk looks at the human experience from different facets, like the four the Satipatthana Sutra, which focuses on four different aspects. 
just like so you could be aware of breathing in different ways in terms of the feelings in terms etc etc the movement so it's ways to um, be attentive and of course you could combine it all and you could break it out in different ways but this is a traditional format um, of course he might have said it in one way and then and, and it got to, to help people remember it it was it was done the, the first time sutras were written down was after they had been orally transmitted over and over for I think two to three centuries yeah. at least maybe that's why more. they numbered things so much yeah. so they would know that there's eight of these and, and they would repeat they them and then the, they so yeah. okay. Thanks. yes yes so I wonder if this is related this being an island unto yourself um, and um, taking refuge recently I've been thinking about taking refuge um, and like for an example let's say uh, at work I feel like someone says something to me or writes an email and I somehow feel insulted or threatened. Um, and then I, you know, and then, I, so then the, the uh, impulse is, you know, to either say something to that person or to compose an email that will really show that person and anyone else on the email thread what's what, you know, um, Instead, like there's the other option of recognizing, you know, something. Recognizing, I feel, I feel threatened. Something is happening here. In other words, do I take refuge in? And I've been thinking, like, if I just pose that email or whatever, then it seems like I'm taking refuge in, in, um, I don't know, just. Um, my my anger or my yes. irritation. Um, if I can just be with with that and somehow you know just be there and breathe and not compose that email, but then I think is that I think that's like taking refuge. In, yes. Well, I've thought of it as taking refuge in the Dharma. Taking refuge in the bodily experiencing in the mind thought experiencing even in the sadness but at the same time it's in a sense overcoming the sorrows and desires and anger by not uh, believing them but rather being because that's the story about the email and what they're saying to you, and what it means about you, and then all what you keep on building on it, as opposed to being there with how it feels to hear or read that email, and what what arises, and letting that arise and pass, because what's arising is just is just a compound thing, just as the Buddha says. It's subject to arising and ceasing. And let, if we can be present, then we're not the boss of what 
if I use other terms, your reactive habit in reading that is. But you, we are the boss if we can allow it to be there without having to then spout our reaction to it of he is such a, and I'm going to let everyone know how he is such a, yeah? In, in a sense, the word refuge is also used when one wants to um, become a practitioner. One, I take refuge in Buddha, I take refuge in Dharma, I take refuge in Sangha. That's it. That's all you have to do to, to um, become a practitioner of Buddha Dharma. Now, we could use the word what refuge means, but in a sense, you turn to that as your practice. That's what he means by being an island. An island in the sense you don't have to, when something happens, go looking outside for something else to help you take care of it. You don't have to go looking in reactions to take care of it, to get even with him, to make sure everyone else knows how she said that thing to me and she's such a, and you fill in what she is. Yeah? Which means we have to be brave and be willing to be mindful and comprehending and dwelling in the feelings when they arise, in dwelling in mind states when they arise, dwelling in mental objects, which enables us, and it's because we are able to let go of the reactive desires, anger, sorrows, that otherwise arise when things, people say things to us, about us, or to other people, or whatever. Okay? Yes? Um, I'm curious, um, is um, turning the wheel of the Dharma with consequences in all directions, is that cause and effect? Is that yes. um, action and reaction? Well, uh, uh, I'm not sure where you're going when you say is that action or reaction. It is cause-effect in the sense that when someone, because someone does something, there are consequences in all directions that then support others. And because someone does something, sometimes it goes in ways that don't support others and cause harming and Someone sends an email, and then someone else reacts to that email, sending more emails to other people, and other people get all juiced up and jiving and and angry or choosing sides. And after a while, you've got a workplace where everyone's fighting with everyone and uh, ready to kill. We see it all the time if you look in our society, and look at you know a lot of the media pride themselves on we're going to make jokes and put other people down and then other people put other people down and then 
you know, and it just goes on and on, and they make lots of money, and and then some of them, you know, destroy each other's um, families and happiness, etc., because they have to keep it going in some form or other. I mean, that seems to be a lot what the media uh, revels in. In, in all, in different forms, in sports. Not only did I get the touchdown, but afterwards I jumped up and down and showed how great I am and how terrible the other team is. You know, you got the touchdown, you got the touchdown, great. But what you do afterwards is just creates more havoc. So what the, what the Buddha sounds like is saying what I'm hearing then is to take refuge in yourself by being with your feelings so that you can see that you're attached to some negativity or something and work through to let that go and then that has other consequences. And you you could even be attached to some positivity if you uh-huh. think, oh I'm gonna I'm I've gotten really great. Oh wow. Oh man. I need to let everyone else know. And how come the rest of my family or friends don't know that? Well, you know, I've got to post it in so many places. And if they don't stroke me, uh, you know, then... See, that's the... Because it's sorrows and desires, or greed and anger. I mean, they're facets of of similar coins. Um... Yes. Okay, thank you. And and the reactions that grow out of those attachments, sometimes we only notice it with the reactions. We don't even, you know, we don't notice the attachment. We just take it for granted. It doesn't matter when... See, that's why when he talks about practice, it doesn't matter at what point we notice it. It's when we... It, it arises to our awareness, whether in our physical or mental or feelings, or that's where we have to make our effort. That's where we, if you want to use the word, be present, be mindful, be experiencing, do what's required, comprehend clearly and mindfully, or strive diligently, whichever word we use. And we do it, in a sense, by also creating the forms, whether it's in terms of sitting regularly, whether it's in terms of treating your work, your house, your social relations as your practice. All of those. Thank you.